Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Our guest today is Dr. Anthony Carlisi. He is the director of the cardiothoracic open heart unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York, and he is an assistant professor of medicine at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York City. Our topic today will be one that I'm sure many of you will find interesting, which is management of the patient after cardiac surgery. This can be somewhat intimidating if you're an intensivist that doesn't have a lot of experience with that. And uh, my colleague, Dr. Carlisi, here has been working in units such as this for over a decade now at this point. So our big picture topic uh, list for today will be first focusing on the patient immediately after cabbage. And then we will be focusing in on the patient who uh, has undergone valvular surgery. We will then discuss... uh, managing a patient who may have a balloon pump as part of their uh, requirement. And then we will try to conclude about talking briefly about some of the major issues that the intensivist should be aware of if they're going to be helping to manage a patient who has a ventricular assist device. So let's just get started. So Dr. Carlisi, you you have explained to me in the past that when you uh, see a patient who comes out of the OR right after having Uh, coronary artery bypass grafting surgery, there are sort of a few major areas that you look for uh, immediately, and I'm just going to high point some of those that we spoke about before and then let you start addressing them one at a time. The first thing that you've told me is you have to listen very, very carefully to both the cardiac anesthesiologist and the cardiac surgeon to find out precisely what was done, hopefully to find out whatever preoperative state you can in terms of their uh, cardiac function or dysfunction. And then the four issues you told me that are on the forefront of your mind are acute graft closure. Uh, The second one we'll discuss is uh, bleeding after surgery and uh, the requirement for the patient to go back to the operating room. The third is that they are, it is the rule rather than the exception that there is a profound vasoplegic state and that they are often on large numbers of vasoactive drips when they come out. And then the fourth one I'd like you to touch on, if you could, is your approach to the patient with arrhythmia. So with that as introduction. Well, good morning, Richard. Thank you for having me. Um, I think what's most important when uh, oftentimes when we receive patients from the operating room uh, through the surgical team uh, is to get not only an understanding of the uh, preoperative uh, situation, uh, which might... Um, which will impact upon their postoperative care, but in particular the intraoperative course. Uh, I think the the nuances which are perhaps presented from the perspe- surgical perspective and the anesthesia perspective have to be taken together uh, in order to understand to get a more complete understanding of the patient from an intraoperative uh, point of view. Uh, the some of the uh, particular pieces of information that I focus on when dealing with these types of patients are uh, obviously the type of surgery that they underwent, uh, and uh, for those patients who received uh, purely a coronary artery bypass graft, uh, information that I'm particularly interested in would be exactly what areas were bypassed, uh, the nature of the targets uh, of the of the vessels to be bypassed, as well as the grafting material itself. 
Uh, as we had talked about previously, the material itself which was used uh, for the bypass grafting uh, is particularly important, whether it was arterial or venous, as well as whether it's a for the arterial graft to be either a pedicle or free graft, as they are definitely uh, certain nuances which, which you have to be mindful of while uh, caring for these patients in the early postoperative period. So um, just to step back for those who may not understand, um, what, what uh, do you mean by the nature of the targets, or how would you even ask the surgeon what that, what that refers to? The surgery itself works best for people who have rather discrete uh, obstructive coronary disease. For those patients that typically have more diffuse atherosclerotic disease or for anatomical reasons perhaps have smaller uh, blood vessels uh, than perhaps you would like to have from a surgical perspective uh, would lead to uh, certain technical concerns uh, both for the surgeon uh, in terms of the uh, achieving adequate bypass flow. So they'll say we had a difficult time getting a particular graft in properly, or for the for the bypassed artery itself. Oftentimes, you'll hear euphemisms like they were poor targets, or there was diffuse disease, uh, or so that they makes were very you, small vessels. So that makes you more concerned about things like acute graft closure. Is that sort well, of I think so, well, that's one possibility. I think another possibility is oftentimes. Uh, of the uh, the consequence of incomplete revascularization. Uh, not only does that occur w- with arteries that were not bypassed for technical purpose of technical reasons, uh, but I think also for those that were bypassed, if either the quality of the grafting material itself or the native vessel which was to be bypassed is not of um, of not an optimum surgical uh, nature, then it would lead it to lead you to be concerned about the possibility of further ischemic events in the postoperative period, or, or the potential for uh, for possible ischemic events in the postoperative period. So, why don't we take some of these uh, topics one at a time, and maybe if you could spend a couple of minutes talking about uh, acute graft closure after cardiac surgery, maybe when we're most concerned about it, and and what what do you see clinically? I think one of the important aspects of this is that it should be considered uh, that when obtaining the information uh, of the patient as they arrive in the ICU, uh, not to rely on the telemetry monitor that you're seeing above the bedside, rather to to actually look at a 12-lead EKG, uh, which would be a little bit more sensitive in terms of looking at a pertinent or, or, or relative EKG changes which might be occurring not only in the areas that were bypassed but also in the non-bypassed areas if those were of concern prior to the surgery. In particular, you're, you're mostly concerned about ST segment and T wave changes that you would encounter in the early postoperative period which, would need, which you would need uh, to determine as to whether or not they're potentially uh, of a pathologic uh, concern. But does the patient, uh, and I'm sorry, I'm I'm being naive, but so will the patient present with like sudden hemodynamic instability or will they have chest pain or is it just EKG changes? What what will be something that in the back of your mind you'll start saying, oh boy, this might be graft closure? Well, uh, unfortunately, the the pain aspect is oftentimes a, a 
a bit of a conundrum to deal through. Correct. Usually the, the incisional pain that they, that they have to deal with in the early postoperative period uh, tends to be a bit of a, of, of a um, something which clouds the water, if you will, in terms of deciding whether or not this is actually of a pathologic uh, process or not. Uh, the things that would, would lead you to think that there perhaps might be a possibility, a possible anatomic reason uh, for uh, the patient not recovering uh, properly would be things like uh, uh, ischemic EKG changes, such as uh, ST and T wave segment uh, abnormalities. Uh, and generally speaking, we, we tend to ignore uh, the ST segment depressions necessarily. However, we get more focused on ST segment elevation. Uh, and that's why it's important to look at a 12 lead EKG because you can definitely be misled by looking at a uh, the overhead telemetry monitor, which might reveal uh, sort of an isolated ST segment change. But when you look at it in terms of a 12 lead EKG, it might be more consistent with acute pericardial reaction. So some of the things that we would look at would be uh, whether or not there's uh, hemodynamic instability, as you mentioned, whether or not the, the cardiac output or the blood pressure are not responding necessarily in an appropriate fashion, or if there were ischemic rhythms, uh, such as uh, in particularly uh, ventricular uh, arrhythmias, such as ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation. And then um, when you, if you pick this up on a patient, is it the rule that that patient then emergently has to go back to the operating room and they re-bypass the patient, or do they ever go to the cath lab and get an angioplasty? Usually what will happen, the sequence that we typically follow is that we'll get an, EK, um, an echocardiogram to evaluate uh, the left ventricle in particular if there's any specific uh, new wall motion changes which might not have occurred uh, via the, uh, the TE, which was done intraoperatively in conjunction with their hemodynamic instability. Also, uh, if the surgeon had something uh, that they were perhaps concerned about, which might not have been related in the initial turnover of the patient, that usually would, would precipitate further intervention. And typically what happens is the patient would be taken emergently to the catheterization lab uh, for PTCA with the possibility of stenting. And, and it would be trying to PTCA the graft that were just created? Correct. Is that right? Correct. They would try to open up the graft, which was acutely closed. I mean, does this suddenly become a much, much, much more difficult case, or can they stent open these grafts? Uh, it depends on the on the nature of the material uh, that was used. It also depends on uh, whether or not there's a discrete obstruction or versus spasm, uh, in which case it becomes a little bit more difficult. And uh, sometimes uh, it makes their postoperative course obviously a bit more difficult to deal with. One of the questions I had for you um are patients who come in who've had emergent cabbage after acute myocardial infarction sort of a completely different kind of patient to care for than those who'd had a planned coronary bypass surgery? Well, I think the from the literature that's uh, been published so far in terms of postoperative complications, and particularly respiratory as well as uh, renal complications after cardiac surgery, uh, emergent cases tend to be one of the leading risk factors for those types of problems. Uh, so it does not only make the, the cardiac management more difficult, but it also uh, lends itself towards the 
the possibility of developing secondary complications from either pulmonary or renal sources. So difficulty removing the patient from the ventilator, et cetera. Correct. Um, one of the other issues that you've helped to, to teach me about over the past couple of years is this issue of the, the preoperative left ventricular function and, and not talking about long-term outcomes, but how it affects your ability to care for the patient afterwards. Is that another area where if you hear that it's low, this is, it will be more difficult to wean from the ventilator, more likely to develop renal dysfunction? Or, or? Well, I, I think uh, for those patients who have, again, w- one of the uh, known risk factors for developing postoperative complications, and whether it's renal or pulmonary, tend, uh, is definitely a poor left ventricular function. Uh, so it does impact in, uh, y- your management in terms of the possibility of developing non-surgically related complications later on in their course. Uh, The utility of knowing what their ejection fraction was, whether it's both intraoperatively or postoperatively, sort of you have to be able to understand the techniques which were used, whether it's determination through cardiac catheterization with a left ventricular uh, contrast uh, study, or if it was determined through uh, through an echocardiographic uh, process as to which would give you more reliable or, or is more sensitive in terms of determining what the, what the left ventricular function is. So one of the other areas that can be um somewhat intimidating when you're first helping to care for patients like this is, as you put it, them in the category of post-operative bleeding and tamponade. And mm-hmm. I was um, a little surprised that you put them together, but then as you explained it to me more, it made sense. And I was wondering if you could maybe help take the average uh, SCCM listener through this, how you, what you look for when you're concerned that the patient might have to return to the operating room. And my impression of your experience is it is not usually a particular area of conflict between you and the surgeons, or is it? Or if you could talk about how to best resolve that. I think uh, that's actually one of the the common conundrums that we deal with uh, in determining when to take the patient back and what to do prior to to deciding when to take the patient back. Uh, This is when knowing the information from the anesthesiologist as well as the cardiac surgeon in terms of their preoperative course uh, specifically if they received any high-dose antiplatelet therapy prior to coming to surgery or if uh, there was any bleeding diathesis prior to uh, their going in. Uh, Also, to understand from the surgical perspective, uh, certain surgeons are more concerned about hemostatic control than others, and uh, they oftentimes will send them out uh, reasonably dry uh, in terms of hemostatic control. Uh, there are other surgeons who have a tendency to send them out a little bit on the um, euphemistically we just we decide we, we call it on the wet side, uh, in which case uh, the they're expecting the hemostatic control to improve over time, uh, but they're uh, less. It's concerned. not that they want the patient to bleed, but that no. they feel that the that the patient that the procedure is done and the patient go to the intensive care unit and they do they think as you said it should resolve on its own correct right yes and I think also from the anesthesiology perspective they actually are quite diligent in terms of making sure that the patient 
was corrected uh, to the best of their ability uh, from the heparin effect, which they were exposed to uh, during the bypass surgery. Some of my anesthesiology colleagues uh, are proponents of using things like the thromboelastogram in terms of providing a more focused uh, path uh, to blood and blood factor replacements uh, for the patients in, the po in the, both the intraoperative and postoperative period. Uh, so we find that information to be useful as well. But so the patient comes into your unit. You're seeing the patient there. T tell me how you, you it's, these are, this is blood coming out of the chest tubes, um, and it's more than how many cc's per hour? Or how do you define it when, when you start being concerned? It tends to be somewhat institutional in terms of the paradigms which are developed. Uh, at the institution I'm, that I'm at currently, uh, the surgeons uh, have decided that uh, 200 cc's an hour for the first two hours uh, without seeming stoppage would warrant uh, re-exploration uh, back in the operating room. So I think that the, the initial uh, paradigm that we typically use to, is to differentiate surgical versus non-surgical bleeding etiologies. The, the utility of the PA catheter helps in terms of using those numbers based upon their relative nature uh, for that patient's physiology in, in the post-operative period as opposed to understanding or using those numbers in terms of their absolute qual uh, quantity. Uh, one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that there can be both uh, anatomical bleeding from a surgical nature versus the uh, coagulopathic bleeding which can occur, which is typically defined as more medical bleeding uh, in the early postoperative period. And certain sources of, of anatomical bleeding can be uh, either they can be bleeding from the sternum itself uh, they can be bleeding from branches of the arteries, uh, which were not uh, particularly uh, under good hemostatic control, uh, or they could have uh, secondarily become uh, uncontrolled uh, in terms of their bleeding. And um, I think the other possibility would be the incidence of what happened in the operating room itself, certain piece of information such as the coronary artery bypass time, uh, which can influence both platelet function as well as number. Uh, the the ability uh, the possibility of heparin rebound, uh, as well as the possibility of any previous uh, high dose platelet uh, antiplatelet therapy, which the patient may have received prior to going to surgery. So, because and and you mentioned to me before that uh, tamponade is is a big concern here. If you have the PA catheter in, if are, are you also having urgent echocardiography done on these patients to help determine that as well? The surgical type of tamponade that we encounter, uh, it can be distinctly different than the medical tamponade, which is typically referred to in textbooks when using the PA catheter. In particular, the, the concept of equalization of pressures related to circumferential fluid accumulation around the heart doesn't always have to occur in the surgical patients. Uh, there can be a, what's referred to as isolated tamponade, uh, where there is inappropriate drainage of the posterior cardiac space or posterior cardiac fossa, in which case uh, there can be an isolated uh, pericardial fluid accumulation or clot formation, uh, which can impair uh, right atrial and right ventricular filling. And based upon the concept of, of of ventricular interdependence, uh, since obviously the right side can't fill appropriately, uh, that, that it cannot allow the left side to fill appropriately and thus eject blood systemically. 
So what I thought we could do uh, next and trying to hit the high points of, you know, the, the, the title of this is, so I have to help take care of a patient after open heart surgery, please help me. So, so a patient comes in after having had open heart surgery and they have a balloon pump. And I was just wondering if you could sort of give a big picture on why they might have it and how it changes the way you manage the patient after open heart surgery. Well, I, I think that the balloon pump uh, role becomes uh, can be somewhat uh, what uh, tricky. Uh, I think the the key is to exactly why the balloon pump was put in. Uh, typically, most of the balloon pumps that we encounter of late have been put in preoperatively in a cardiac catheterization lab, and typically those reasons are either refractory angina or uh, poor left ventricular function, and generally uh, or um, one other possibility is that they're actually put in intraoperatively by the cardiac surgeon if there's an anticipation of the possibility uh, that there may be some difficulty coming off bypass. So, but is it the rule, though, in general, that these are patients that have the ones where they put it in the cath lab? These are patients that came in with acute myocardial infarction and are getting emergent percutaneous inter- or attempted percutaneous intervention? Um, and that they, they have profound hemodynamic instability believed to be from the myocardial infarction itself? I think it goes towards reason. Usually if a patient undergoes a cardiac catheterization uh, and is found to have either high-grade stenosis or particular high-grade left main obstruction, uh, a lot of times the cardiac surgeon will put in a balloon pump prophylactically for anatomical purposes, in which case once the bypass is completed, the balloon pump is no longer really necessary, and that can be typically weaned and, and removed within the first 12 hours after surgery. But that might be a, a elective if they find bad disease, you mean? Yes, correct. What they would do is they would say, you know, he's, the patient has high-grade high, high grade stenosis or high-grade left main disease. The patient needs to get bypassed emergently uh, because they're not obviously not an instrumentation candidate, uh, and they put a balloon pump in in an attempt to uh, optimize coronary perfusion once the bypass is achieved uh, with good result, then the function of the balloon is superfluous and it can usually be removed with, within the first 12 hours after surgery. So the reason the balloon was placed is, is important. Though. Correct, correct. It, usually if it's put in for more uh, valvular issues or patients who have uh, poor left ventricular function in the setting of valvular disease, it becomes a little bit more of a problem uh, in terms of how to wean it. Uh, one of the ways we decide on weaning is how they respond in terms of their hemodynamic profile, uh, in which case we would look at things like uh, vasomotor or vasoactive agents and inotropes, which are being used at the time to optimize their cardiac performance. And as we wean the balloon, we would keep an eye on how, they, how they're responding in terms of their cardiac output, their AVO2 difference, um, mixed venous oxygen saturation, and their lactate level. Um, is one of the other indications when the cardiac surgeon, this is the I can't get the patient off of the bypass machine, and yeah. if you could talk about that for a little bit. If the surgeon feels that either for anatomical reasons, when I say anatomical reasons, I'm referring to uh, poor left ventricular function or a significant non-corrected valvular disease, uh, they will oftentimes put in a balloon pump somewhat prophylactically in anticipation uh, of their inability to remove the patient off bypass, in which case it again becomes an issue of weaning it as their hemodynamic profile allows. Um, and again, you've, you've explained to me that this whole 
area has changed over the past few years in terms of whether or not the surgeon in that particular setting will put in a balloon pump or a, you said there's a whole new category of percutaneous ventricular assist devices, and I thought we might segue into that as part of this discussion. For the community, it seems uh, there there is of late uh, more readily available ventricular assist devices, which can be put in in a non-tertiary center, uh, or those pa- or those centers which are uh, by, uh, cardiac surgery centers uh, that don't have necessarily the facilities to deal with sophisticated third or fourth generation left ventricular assist devices. And they have a, currently on the market, there is a temporary left ventricular assist device which can be put in either by a surgeon uh, during uh, the OR or actually by a cardiologist in the cardiac catheterization lab uh, for uh, either right or left ventricular assist, which can be done on a temporary basis. And you've seen patients that have had either one or either or both? Correct. Yeah. They will oftentimes primarily have a left ventricular, uh, temporary left ventricular assist device inserted. However, based upon their underlying pathophysiology, they may actually end up with a biventricular assist device. Now, my, my impression is that if you have two similar cases and they one they put in a temporary LVAD and one they put in a balloon pump, it seems like there's more pressure to get the balloon pump out sooner and that it may be actually easier to manage the patient who has the temporary LVAD, or do you want to talk about that? Well, they both have their, obviously, pros and cons. In terms of the balloon pump, one of the major problems that we deal with is bleeding as well as vascular compromise. Uh, and there's also the possibility of uh, peripheral platelet destruction, which can also impact upon their bleeding risk. Uh, the balloon pump, oftentimes, we try to remove it within, you know, two to three days at the most. Uh, we don't typically like to leave it in longer than that. Um, we, if we decide to leave the balloon pump in for longer than 24 hours, that would require anticoagulation, uh, which in and of itself, as you know, has its own downsides. Uh, in terms of the left ventricular assist devices, uh, in terms of ease of management, uh, they're both basically, with the current generation of temporary assist devices, probably equally uh, can be managed with equal ease. Uh, there doesn't seem to be much in terms of difference in terms of sophistication uh, of necessarily manpower, um, but I think obviously there's, defi- there's definite different physiologic concerns that you have to be mindful of, but in terms of their, their manpower, nece- the manpower necessary uh, to maintain these devices, it, they're of equal ease. And um, when I was a resident, I th- I, my understanding is that the, the balloon pumps there will they will wait a day or so in terms of anti or, or in terms of the timing of anticoagulation with these. That I was a little confused. By yeah, that. typically what we would do is uh, with the risk of uh, clot formation uh, around the balloon itself, uh, we would typically oh, and as well as the the risk of uh, or at least mitigating the risk of vascular compromise related to the the sheath uh, insertion site. We oftentimes learn to coagulate them starting after the first 24 hours of insertion if we're anticipating them requiring the balloon pump to be in for a prolonged period of time. And then you've, you've explained to me that most of the, both the percutaneous and the uh, more permanent left ventricular assist devices 
can you talk about the anticoagulation with that just for a couple of minutes? Well, it depends on the obviously the the nature of the device. There are Originally, there were second-generation devices, which at this point have sort of fallen out of favor clinically and are more used from a study perspective. And currently, most centers that are involved in this kind of work are dealing with third- and fourth-generation devices, in which case they do require a certain amount of anticoagulation, both antiplatelet therapy as well as oral anticoagulation. And I thought we would finish with the LVAD discussion um, by me just sort of introducing the major categories and then letting you do a bit of a summary discussion. So as you've explained it to me, there's you can they can be used in three major settings, bridge to transplant, so somebody who has profound left ventricular dysfunction and congestive heart failure to the point that they need a transplant, but they need something to keep them alive until they come off the list, bridge to recovery where they think that same patient might actually just be able to have the device explanted, um, and then destination therapy, um, where they just get the device. So maybe if you want to talk about the different kinds of patients. Yeah, I think the, the, the differential uh, between the three groups is based upon uh, their age, their functional status, and their transplant candidacy. Uh, for those patients that the device is placed as destination therapy, uh, typically these patients are felt to be non-transplant candidates and uh, with refractory stage 4 heart failure in which case, uh, I'm sorry, class 4 heart failure, in which case uh, they're using this as a means to improve their quality of life uh, while uh, trying to optimize them medically. And they will all go home with these devices, and uh, obviously there are certain restrictions in terms of activity, but generally speaking, they, do are, they are able to maintain a nor fairly normal lifestyle. The first category that you just spoke about is destination therapy. They can't be transplanted, and... Nevertheless, they are deemed to be a candidate for this device long-term. Sorry. Correct. The other uh, two groups, which can basically uh, be looked at together, would be those patients that are felt to be uh, devices used for those patients that are bridged to recovery, uh, in which case they feel that it's going to be a short-term usage and that uh, hopefully uh, that those patients will recover enough native uh, function that they no longer need any extracorporeal uh, support. Uh, and lastly, there's those that are uh, bridged to uh, transplant uh, that, are, as you mentioned, while they're waiting for an adequate candidate, uh, that they use this in terms of maintaining them. Well, Dr. Carlisi, uh, again, I've, I've tried to encapsulate your 10 years of experience in 25 minutes, and, and I know it was a difficult challenge, and maybe if there's enough positive feedback, we'll do a part two on, on managing the patient after open-heart surgery, but I'm, I'm very, very grateful for your time. This is, this is very important work, and again, as you've taught me over the past couple of years, the, the approach can often be counterintuitive if you're not experienced working with these patients. We've been speaking today with Dr. Anthony J. Carlisi. He is the director of the Open Heart Unit, Cardiac Surgery Unit at Montefiore Medical Center, Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, I appreciate it, Richard. Thank you very much. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information, as well as full access to over four years of archived podcasts. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. The Society's internationally renowned Fundamental Critical Care Support, FCCS, program has been updated to reflect the latest skills and techniques practitioners need to treat critically ill and injured patients in the absence of an intensivist.
In addition, Fundamental Disaster Management, FDM, has been updated to help healthcare professionals prepare to treat victims of natural or man-made mass casualties. Bring Fundamental Critical Care Support, Pediatric Fundamental Critical Care Support, and Fundamental Disaster Management courses to your institution. For more information, ask to speak with a hospital relations manager or visit www.sccm.org. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the medical co-director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City, practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org. Dot org.